Hi, I'm Mackenzie Bacon, and this is 112BK. Coming up, tales of retail, shuttered shops, fines on signs, and now a bag ban. A New York Times reporter is here to sum it up. All of these things that we see advertised to us as conveniences, as advantages, as, as efficiencies, they come at a cost, and the cost is usually our neighbors and our friends in terms of jobs and in terms of businesses. And then the 10-year challenge, Brooklyn edition. Honestly, not all these changes are great. You know, I miss Glasslands, and I imagine you miss Southpaw, and I don't like paying what I pay in rent anymore. But uh, overall, I'm really happy that I'm still in Brooklyn 10 years later, and I think a lot of these changes are for the best. Walk into your neighborhood bodega, the one with classic number one Deli Express written on the shop sign, and walk out with a six pack of Tecate and a pint of Haagen-Dazs in a plastic bag. Now imagine there's no plastic bag. Imagine there's no sign. What if I told you there's not even a bodega? New York retail is facing an existential crisis, and here to talk with us about the challenges facing the city's stores, we're joined by Ozzie Pebra, who writes the New York Today column for the New York Times. Welcome back to Woman 2 BK. Thanks for having me. So you wrote an article recently called, Can Anyone Solve the Vacant Storefront Problem? What is the vacant storefront problem, and can anyone solve it? That is a great question. The vacant storefront problem is, like it sounds, you walk down the street, there used to be a store, and now there's not. What is left is a vacant storefront. It's sort of like like the shell of a cicada that, that you used to see on sides of trees when we still had trees. Or it's sort of like a haunted house. Sure. It's, it's just standing there, it's empty, and you look inside and there's like remnants of what used to be there. The hollow container that used to house the soul of a store. Exactly. Or my favorite foods or your favorite books. Right. And they stand there and you get this reminder of the past and that there's not something new moving in makes it stand out particularly uh, noticeable. And it's not just one neighborhood. It's not just one street. It's not just one borough. This is happening across the city. It's happening across the country. And why is that? There are many factors as to why. One of the biggest explanations is that online retail has sort of moved in and they haven't just moved in to the internet. They've moved into our pockets by being and on our cell Long phones. And to Long Island City. And to Long Island City. Right. We, we see you at Amazon <laughs> and your helipad. But with everyone being able to access or have the expectation of accessing more of what they want and more of what they need on their phones, there is less of an appetite for people to walk down multiple streets or even one street to get things that they want. So... If you start your day working from home, where you don't have to go into a particular office, businesses lose the foot traffic that they used to rely on. And now that you can do your holiday shopping anytime you want online and have it delivered to you maybe by drone one day, a lot of these face-to-face contacts that people had with retail are sort of diminishing. And one of the things that might be replacing it in some way is the idea of using those retail spaces more as a showroom where you sort of advertise and let customers interact with your product and then they go home and buy it online. Right. Like I think Jeff Bezos said that the future of retail, real world retail, was going to perform one of two functions. One, 
give you something that you needed immediately and couldn't get online, although that seems to be changing as well. Right. Or, and two, provide an experience, like a real-world interaction that you can't have online as well. All other retail replaced by online shopping. Right. So that's one of the issues that is contributing to these yes. vacant storefronts. What else we got? Rising rents. Surprise, surprise, New York City is expensive. Even more surprising, it keeps getting more expensive. So if businesses are being squeezed for customers, but then their landlords are saying we have other people that can pay more, then there's an obvious price tension that happens there. And places like restaurants are not known for having large profit margins in which they could sort of recover from. They are feeling these challenges. You add to it, according to some critics, more regulation about how much people are paid in wages, time off, and things of that nature. Employing humans is a complicated process. And the more that you have to deal with, the harder it becomes and the less uh, room for mistakes you have when you're running that kind of business. So, so, so those are two factors happening on the economic level. But why then don't we just see like a Walgreens or another national chain in all of these vacant storefronts? Like if, if, if landlords are saying, well, I could get a big right. business to come in, why are they still sitting empty? It's a great question. Sometimes landlords are able to write off of their own, I believe, taxes, the expense of leaving a storefront vacant. Uh, there's a financial mechanism in which this can happen. When you talk to people who are dealing with this issue, they say that landlords have an incentive to sort of keep a storefront vacant, write it off, rather than sign a 10-year lease at a lower rent, because that locks in that discount that a landlord has to sort of incur. There are a lot more Walgreens. There are a lot more CVSs and Duane Reeds and these national retail places that have come in and taken the place of a mom and pop store. One of the reasons why you don't see as many vacant storefronts potentially is that there are efforts to keep beloved neighborhood places like the bookstore on the Upper West Side, interestingly enough, called the West Sider, you know, used in rare books. They had a GoFundMe campaign that helped them when they were on the, on the precipice of going out of business. So businesses are relying on the charity and goodwill of their patrons in order to keep them in business. Yes, and, and that happened also in Midtown with the drama bookshop when Lin-Manuel Miranda, who we all know from Hamilton, stepped in and said, I and some other partners from the show will come in and save this bookstore from closing. The city is helping that business relocate nearby. But there you have a few wealthy people who are able and have an interest in saving a particular bookstore. This doesn't seem sustainable, the patronage system for small businesses. That is exactly why all of those feel-good stores are actually kind of ominous. That if you are in a neighborhood that doesn't have a lot of people who are able to organize and donate money in this way, and if you are not a business that has a sentimental place in the hearts of a few very well-to-do people, your days may be numbered. You could feel that way. So in places that probably need or could benefit the most from having bookstores and open spaces and fresh produce at affordable rates where you're not also being charged for luxury items, neighborhoods and communities that feel like they need that may not even be able to have them, and they're already disappearing in other places. So what are some other solutions? Like, I know San Francisco has a legacy business registry yes. where uh, if you've been around for a certain number of years, you can get on the registry, and there are certain protections and also subsidies that you qualify for. Right, w which some people will say even that is somewhat of a problem because you're now asking the taxpayer to sort of subsidize a business that may not be able to sort of sustain on their own. And if they're not sustaining on their own, maybe you should sort of let the marketplace do what the marketplace does, right? Like, so you have a Which lot of- leads to vacant storefronts. But when you ask about who can solve this, 
whenever people have problems, they often go to a select group of people, lawmakers. They hear from constituents. They, they're up for election all the time. And for better or for worse, if it's if a problem's in their wheelhouse, they often get asked to sort of deal with what's happening in the places around them. The state Senate, the Assembly, and the governor's mansion are all controlled by Democrats now after the most recent elections. So therefore, a unified party or a state government in a unified party control now has an opportunity to sort of address this in a real muscular way. The real estate community and landlords who have always had a better sort of relationship with with Republicans are seeing that there might be some legislation coming down the pike and they're figuring out how best to sort of deal with this. Are they going to sort of work in order to make what is coming down the pike not as detrimental to their constituency, or are they just going to throw up as many roadblocks as they can and hope things sort of course correct? And and what is some of this potential legislation? There's um, business rent control. What else? Business rent control, I think, is is one of the biggest ones. Um, When I was talking to state senator who represents the, the, the West Village, Brad Hoylman, he had referenced what was happening out in San Francisco as one possibility. The mayor has sort of tried to float a couple of different ideas. What they all sort of come down to is protecting existing businesses and preventing landlords from raising rents almost the way that you would have those protections for uh, residential tenants, rent control, rent stabilization, and things of that nature. They get complicated when you add when you add the tax implications of all that, because Cuomo is, is very much interested in, in having the state collect not more taxes, but not seeing a decrease because he has a state government to run and, and resources to provide. And you're, you already have things like business improvement districts, which are assessed like taxes, but they go to extra amenities like people who, street, who clean the streets and things of that nature. So you have all of these sort of like forces at play, and it's not clear what specifically is going to emerge as like the sole solution or the, the magic bullet. It's going to require customers to change their behavior. It's going to require people to deal with less efficiency. If you want your neighborhood store and you don't want it to be run by algorithms and drones and robots, and, and if you want people to be, to, to be employed in there, you're going to have to spend more time going into those stores, spending money. Um, all of these things that we see advertised to us as conveniences, as advantages, as, as efficiencies, they come at a cost. And the cost is usually our neighbors and our friends in terms of jobs and in terms of businesses. So that might be a pretty tall order yes. to get yes. people to abandon online shopping. But I guess I'm curious, you know, so much of having robust retail in a neighborhood is about forming community and interacting with your neighbors and, and having somebody who knows your name at the local store. Yeah. Um, and if all of these places disappear and the future of real world retail is looking bleak, what would you like to see maybe replace some of these ground floor storefronts? I think when we talk about space, the physical makeup of the city, and what we want as people, we are starting to have to reimagine what we are expecting. There used to be a time where you didn't have to think about it. Look at the model of a library. It's it's owned by the city, and it operates very much like a public space, and it's a place where people can access so many resources. It's not uh, transactional in, in the way that we think of most retail. It's downright communist. It is, in, in, in a way. But you, and they have free Wi-Fi. In some places, you don't even have to use a pin or, or to log on. Now, what is happening with all these retail spaces? You sort of wonder, 
well, maybe they have to be reimagined in a way where somebody owns it, so someone takes responsibility for its upkeep, its maintenance, but that the people who are invited in are, are not necessarily presented with the barrier of a financial transaction in order to stay. Mm -hmm. You see a little bit of that with public atriums that sort of pop up in between buildings in Manhattan, where in exchange for a building higher, you, you sort of give uh, some ground floor access to whoever wants to sit there. There's a lot of people who are sort of working on this, but you have to start thinking outside the box out, other than direct tra transactions. Right, reimagining the ways in which we use space in the city. Um, it's 2019. Let's think different. That's right. I want to shift gears a little bit <laughs> and talk about a rather bizarre news piece, which has to do with signs and awnings. Yes. Can you tell us what happened? Signs, signs, everywhere signs. Uh, it feels like that when you walk down the street. Um, even though retail is, is having a challenge, when you look up in New York City, there are signs and advertisements everywhere. And one of the ways you know where you're going is when a store has a sign outside that says... Mike's Pizza, Bill's Books, and whatnot. Sort of a no-brainer. How am I going to know where to go? There's a sign above the business, it, right? Exactly. But some of these businesses ran into trouble lately. Yes. There was a spike in the number of complaints that were being made to city officials, and the complaints were sort of curious. Not many people know this, but there are rules and regulations about what type of information you have on your sign. Technically speaking, I believe you are required to have your business name or the name you do business under, your address, and I believe that's it. Anything else technically falls outside of the lane of, of what you're allowed to have. And so there's also size restrictions, right? Like anything above a certain square font. footage. And font size and yeah. things like that. Yes. They're, they're, as much fun as you can take out of sign awnings, someone has thought of it and basically put it into a city rule. And I guess the idea was to say people need a basic understanding of what is a business when it opens up. There were rules set in place, and then there's the way people behave, and they're not always the same. Sure, and, and this obscure piece of code is, like, largely ignored, right? But it is largely ignored. Every couple of years, if you've been around the city long enough, you'll hear vague stories about, like, oh, there was a random spike in complaints that were happening. And it, it somehow doesn't feel organic. It's, it feels like it's orchestrated. It feels like it's concentrated in a particular area at a particular time. There was also concern that maybe there was some racial targeting going on because a lot of these complaints were in Sunset Park and uh, people who had signs in languages other than English were perhaps being targeted. Yes, there has always been this tension in New York City as long as I can remember in certain areas where people say that a sign that does not have any English or enough English somehow is discriminatory and unfair and even unsafe. I'm not saying I agree with it. I'm saying that is what has been the argument for wanting to change it. One person who has tried to change it in years past was a councilman who later became a state senator, Tony Avella, out in Queens. And one of the arguments he had made was that if you're a fireman rushing in, if you don't see the smoke but you know sort of what the address is, you need to know what is on the other side of the door. And if you don't have a sign that's in English, how are we going to know, right? If you have a dangerous peanut allergy, you might mistakenly walk into a peanut shop not realizing. Or if, or if there's a fire and it's a paper store rather than an animal shelter, you, right. you would sort of want to know what, what, what are the contours there. And that argument, people have, have criticized it and said, look, you know, it, it's sort of xenophobic. If you have the basic information in terms of physical location, that's good. And people have used the argument of, I speak English, that sign's not in English, 
and 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 it seems to mirror debates that people have in other parts of the country about whether or not English should be the official language and things of that nature. And it is hard to dismiss the accusation of xenophobia when you see the complaints targeted in certain neighborhoods and not in others right. for very similar looking awnings and signs. So hopefully the, the the city figures out what's going on. But this is just one more headache for a person who is rolling up the gates on their business, wanting to stay. And this is just like another weird random thing that seems to happen in New York City every couple of years. And the fines for the signs are not small. It's like a minimum $6,000 per sign. So this is a burden on a lot of small business owners who, as we've heard, are already under significant they, pressure. They are, imagine how many slices of pizza you have to sell to pay off that fine. Well, it depends on what neighborhood you're selling pizza. <laughs> Only a couple and a few. Um, let's get to the really sexy stuff, which is plastic bag ban. Uh, talk <laughs> yes. to us about what legislation is going to be coming through and how it's going to impact people. So for years, plastic bags, single-use plastic bags, have been given to customers after they buy produce and whatnot, and they put their stuff in the bag, they go home, they throw out the bag, and it ends up in landfills. and it, it ends up clogging a lot of machinery that, that deals with, with sewage. And what you end up having is, is like an environmental problem that is being fueled by these things that people don't really think about a whole lot. Somehow, for some reason, California, Boston, Hawaii, Hawaii, yeah. and, and a number of other places, France, Kenya, like, like other places have sort of dealt with the idea of getting rid of single-use plastic bags and banning them. Other places have put a fine or a tax in order to discourage their, the use of those plastic bags. And for some reason, New York City got blocked when they tried to do a five-cent bag surcharge. They got blocked by Andrew Cuomo. And now he is saying that he would like a statewide ban on plastic bags. And it becomes slightly challenging when you think of what that ban would do. If you're not using plastic bags, you might use paper bags. Right. And is that worse? Is that better? It is a challenge because it is more expensive for businesses to procure them and stock them. They're actually heavier to sort of transport. But in terms of like environmental impact? They degrade and, and they're recyclable, but they do put they do put more pressure on trees on having to make them. So mm -hmm. imagine if you have a balloon and if you squeeze one into the balloon to make it smaller, that all that extra air might pop up somewhere else. If you are diminishing the need or the demand for plastic bags, you might increase the need for paper bags. And as we know, with rainforests all over the world, they are shrinking because more people are cutting down trees and whatnot. And and this isn't going to apply to all plastic bags, right? There's right. like certain categories of single-use plastic right. bags. By the way, what's a multiple-use plastic bag? Everyone's like single-use plastic. A reusable plastic bag. Okay, talk to me about that. Talk to me about ones that are going to be exempt from this. Sure. So exempt from a plastic bag ban are things like the bag that your newspaper comes in. If you still get a newspaper delivered to your home, it's in a plastic bag, safe. If you are in the produce aisle of your supermarket and you want to take your cilantro but not have it mixed with your grapes, you put them in two plastic bags, fine. If you eat meat and you have the butcher slice up chicken, duck, ground beef, and he puts it in a bag, safe. The bags that are not going to be allowed to be used are the bags that you would get from the cashier when you put all those in bags to carry home. Right. But multiple-use bags, like a tote bag that you would get from subscribing to The New Yorker, WNYC, or a whole bunch of other places, those might become more popular, maybe even 
a fashion accessory or not. <laughs> but the idea that, that, that people will just carry them is right. not so wild. In New York City, the conversation is, oh, my God, what are people going to do? That's outrageous. But if you look outside of New York City, it's done. Well, it's, it's a done. little absurd. You know, like San Francisco passed this ages ago and also right. like in certain sectors of Brooklyn, carrying your NYC, WNYC or your New Yorker toad is just mandatory sort of done. Right. You know, you move into your apartment. But I, I think I think some of the, the criticism right. is that this might have it might impact low income communities. Um, right. So proportionally. Yes. So that is a an argument that is used frequently whenever there is change that is made. Right. And if we do ban plastic bags, it's not as if there won't be paper bags, other options. There are paper bags. There are backpacks. Sure. And the city does have a program to give free reusable bags to people. It is not difficult. I'm not saying it's the easiest thing in the world to do, but there are ways to do this. And if you are motivated, if you're organized and if you want to do it, there is a way it's a debate, it's a conversation, it's an equation, and I just wish people sort of connected those two when, when, when they were discussing plastic bags. Ozzy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. In 2009, I lived with two roommates above a daycare in Park Slope, and I was wearing a lot of shorts with boots. It was a thing. The tenure challenge that you've seen popping up all over social media is a great excuse for your friends to casually show how much more attractive they are than they were a decade ago, perhaps thanks to the fact that they're no longer wearing shorts with boots. But we thought it would be a great excuse to see how Brooklyn has changed since 2009. And we've brought on Nick Rizzo, ex-bartender, future locksmith, political animal, and general know-it-all, to take a walk down memory lane with us. Nick, welcome back to 112BK. So great to be here. Thanks, Mackenzie. Um, what was 2009 like for you? Yeah, so it was uh, disclosure viewers. We went to college together and That's haven't really true. seen each other since... Uh, since more or less 2008, yeah, I would say. Yeah, more about. than a decade ago. More than so. a decade, yeah. yeah. I, I remember, I think I remember those shorts and boots, but no, not really much <laughs> later after that. So paint us a picture of your life in 2009. Sure. I had been out of NYU for a couple of years. I'd lived in Brooklyn for about 18 months at that point. Uh, first, I lived in Carroll Gardens, but by 10 years ago, I'd already moved to Greenpoint, which is where I live now. Okay. So... First category for our trip down memory lane, mm -hmm. the state senate. What yeah. did the state senate look like in 2009? What does it look like today? So this is an interesting parallel to today. Um, in January of 2009, Democrats had just won the state senate for the first time in forever. There was re a lot of optimism about what sort of changes should occur but instead, in the summer of 2009, a group of renegade Democrats in the Senate who were known as either the Three or Four Amigos. The Four Amigos doesn't have quite the same ring to it, yeah. I'm going to say. Right. Well, it was, it was one of them was kind of directing things from behind the scenes a little bit, but didn't actually fully jump with them. But basically, three state senators defected to the Republican side briefly um, for their own aggrandizement. And basically, everybody involved in that Senate coup, as it was called, the 2009 Albany Senate coup, almost every single one of those people went to prison eventually for other reasons. It was, it was more or less a criminal conspiracy, actually. And uh, flash forward to today, what's the landscape at the Senate like? Flash forward to today, we're feeling a little bit better about the state Senate. Shortly after the Senate coup, Democrats lost the state Senate and did not retake it until this November. 
So now we're a few weeks into Democratic control of the state Senate, and they've already passed a lot of measures, including... The RHA. Uh, RHA yesterday with my, my friend Julia Salazar uh, helped pass that to, to fully legalize abortion and contraception here in New York State. We also have done stuff for Dreamers. They've done stuff to limit the close the so-called LLC loophole in campaign financing, early voting. So there's been a lot that's happened already. So uh, far, no coups. So far, no coups. Let's keep our fingers crossed. That's right. Um, all right. Next up, term limits. Yeah. In 2009, those existed. <laughs> yeah. So again, this is one of those, in TV, you might call them bottle episodes, mm. where something happens over the course of the episode, and by the end of the episode, things have kind of gone back to the status quo. So in the wake of the financial crisis, remember that, folks, Mike Bloomberg felt that he was the only person who could be New York City mayor, who had the gravitas for that, so he extended term limits. He got the the makeup heir billionaire who supported term limits originally to agree to that extension, and that kind of changed the landscape in terms of who was running for mayor that year. He got to run for mayor again. He beat controller Bill Thompson, and he was mayor for four more years. And then since then, the city council has repealed that. So we don't have uh, term limits anymore. And, and or we do have term limits again. We do have term limits. Sorry. In 2009, Anthony Weiner was also considering tossing his hat into the ring. And this was pre-Carlos Danger. Or maybe, maybe yeah. he was Carlos Danger. We just didn't know about it. Right. Can you envision what 2019 might look like if Weiner had run and Sure. Won? So one of... Bloomberg's moves around the term limits 10 years ago were definitely shaped viewing with Anthony Weiner in mind. Uh, I think I think the Bloomberg camp felt that Bloom, that Weiner was the strongest opponent. So they released a bunch of bad stories about him. Ultimately, not as bad as the <laughs> stories right. would end up being. I mean, I think we can all acknowledge it was a different time, sort of, right? Sure. Um, and. Basically, every day there was another bad story about Anthony Weiner before he decided to run, for, when he was deciding whether to run for mayor or not. And in the end, uh, he decided not to. And they hung up a big goalie mask in the Bloomberg campaign headquarters because uh, uh, Anthony Weiner used to play hockey. Presumably, in his incarceration, he's not playing hockey. Um, right, so Weiner was a really big deal back then. Looked like he very well could be the uh, future mayor. Then he had a really bad scandal. Then he came back from that scandal. Then he had another scandal. Right, what a difference a decade makes. Let's talk about taxis. If I wanted to take a car somewhere in New York in mm -hmm. 2009, what would I have done? Yeah. Yeah, there used to be a bunch of car services that you would actually call with your phone. You couldn't open an app. You actually like had you to- Like you would dial the phone number. Dial a on, phone number on, on your, your phone. On your flip phone. On a flip phone, yeah. exactly. You couldn't T9 them or do anything else with texting. You had to actually call them. Um, and then they would always say five minutes, regardless of how long it would be. Five before. minutes. Five minutes. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes it was five minutes. Sometimes it was three minutes. Sometimes it was 15 minutes. You had no way of tracking this on your phone. It would just show up. So that's what we had going into then. And, you know, the, um, the G train wasn't as good back then either. Right. Um, and yellow cabs. Yellow cabs were much more a part of our daily lives. Yeah, but it was a whole thing that uh, if you were getting into you could get a yellow cab in Manhattan. If you were Correct. taking the yellow cab out to Brooklyn, you had to be very careful to make sure you were inside the cab before, before you, you said Brooklyn them. because otherwise they'd refuse. Right. Once they were in Brooklyn, pretty much they would just drive back to Manhattan as quickly as they could. So unless you were on sort of like 4th Avenue and Park Slope or, say, McGinnis Boulevard and Greenpoint, there 
are only a few places that you could kind of hope to regularly catch a yellow cab, and it would be only on their route back to Manhattan. That's really right. only useful to go to Manhattan. I guess the legislation was passed that you could hail a green cab. Yeah. Yeah. So those were created by Councilman David Yasky, mm-hmm. who then became Taxi and Limousine Commissioner David Yasky. And so I think that made a big difference. I still really like the green cabs to use a little bit of a corporate plug. Uh, I like to use the Curb app to hail green cabs. That's my preferred ride hail service rather than Uber or Lyft or whatever. Jumo. There's so many options. Um, But yeah, nowadays this all seems kind of uh, old hat, right? We have so many different ways to call a car here in Brooklyn in 2019. And in... 2013, Yellow Cab Medallion was worth as much as $1.3 million. Um, today, however, because of competition from Uber and Lyft, it could be as low as $160,000. It might be lower than that, to be honest. The, it, the, the market for Yellow Cab Medallions is no longer liquid. It used, to be, it used to be high because it was barely liquid. It was very hard to get your hands on one, and no one wanted to sell them. And there'd be uh, takeout kind of very fancy loans on them. They were considered very stable collateral. Yeah, no, there's no, as far as I can tell, there's no point to having a taxi medallion anymore. And this has led to like a terrible spate of taxi driver suicides and people who are deeply in debt and have no way of bailing themselves out. It's terrifically depressing. Yes. Capitalism. Uh, Speaking of capitalism, let's talk about gentrification. I feel like we could, you know, spend an entire hour just talking about, like, remember this place we loved in 2009 that's now a high rise? But talk to me a little bit about what the borough looked like 10 years ago. Sure. I would say the main casualty is performance venues. Mm. So uh, whether up by me, that's a place like Glasslands, um, where I think I celebrated 2008's Halloween. or DBA, or I mean, so many kind of uh, different semi-DIY spaces that existed in what are now very expensive neighborhoods. Um, in Park Slope, there was uh, Southpaw, right? Now a daycare. Now I a daycare. Believe. Yep. But yeah, I mean, there's not just that. Obviously, uh, affordable housing is much harder to get by. There's a lot of things that uh, have changed in our borough, real estate-wise, in the last decade, and mostly not for the better, unless you happen to own that real estate. That's right. I saw in doing some research that Studio B, which was sort of in on the Greenpoint North Williamsburg border, uh, is now a single-family live workspace that sold for eleven million dollars. Wow! Yeah. For a while, it's hard to keep track, but there was one that I thought was Studio B that was supposed to become a a Mercedes showroom. I want to say not not really like a place that you could actually go and buy a Mercedes in, but more of like a cool space where you can experience what it's like to be a Mercedes owner. Sure. Um, I think that's but a yeah. good use of space. Yeah, I, yeah, I'm curious. So I represent, you know, North Brooklyn. I'm the Democratic district leader for Williamsburg and Greenpoint. And I've been curious about these real plutocrats, right? Like, I'm not aware of anyone who's, I don't know anyone who's paid $10 million for their Brooklyn space yet. Um, but there are a few of them on the market in my district. So I'm really curious to see eventually who, uh, you know, if Jeff Bezos is going to move into Williamsburg or yeah, whatever. Yeah, any plutocrats who listen to the show, uh, give us a tweet. We'd love to have you on. Talk about your life. Yeah, I think that would be really interesting. How many Brooklyn plutocrats are there? A few. There's a few. Plenty. Yeah. Plenty. Um, all right, final bonus round. The MTA, 2009, pre-Sandy. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned the G train wasn't running as well, but yeah. pretty much every other train was running better. Ridership increased for a number of years after 2009 and now has been decreasing for the last year or two as 
uh, people just can't even. That's right. Uh, we, we have a ridership increase of 147 million over the last 10 years. Uh, that seems crazy. Yeah, it was big. It was basically all of our city's population increase, which luckily, New York was kind of plateaued at about 8.1 million for a number of years, and now we're growing again. All that growth uh, was for a while going into the subways, which I think is good. It's the most efficient way that people can travel around the city. But uh, I think over the last year, couple of years, we've seen a slight decrease in, in official ridership, and people aren't sure whether that's due, due to fare dodging or ride hail services. Or Mercedes or, dealerships. Mercedes dealerships. Or people are just sick of not the unreliability of feeling like every day on your commute you don't know when you're actually going to get to work. Sure. I know I said that was the bonus round, but maybe this is like the lightning bonus Ooh, round. Oh, love it. Uh, Atlantic Yards. Sure. 2009. So, what did it look like? In 2009, it was a hole in the ground that people were very angry about. Uh, it had been going on for a number of years at that point. The weird thing about Atlantic Yards is we were sort of promised, like, a the, stadium. The world. The mood. World. Yeah. <laughs> but we got the Barclays Center, which I guess kind of helps put Brooklyn on the map. And then the rest of it, sort of everything that people complained about it being, I guess, was true, except some of it didn't even get built. Right. Uh, we were pu- promised green space, affordable housing, all of that. I don't think we got the green space, did we? No. Yeah. Oh, well. I think I would be remiss not to note that how regular people in Brooklyn view gender and class and maybe race has changed a lot in the last decade. Uh, Certainly for me, uh, in 2009, uh, I thought rich people were a lot cooler than I do now. Um, (laughs) and, And I thought it was cool to be, you know, connected to them. And I probably almost definitely had some opinions about women that I no longer hold. So, and like, what's an appropriate way of viewing that? So I think, I think honestly, not all these changes are great. You know, I miss, I miss Glasslands and I imagine you miss Southpaw, but, uh, and I don't like paying what I pay in rent anymore, but uh, overall I'm really happy. Uh, that I'm still in Brooklyn 10 years later. And I think a lot of these changes are for the best. Yeah, that's a good summation that changing social attitudes, that there is progress. Yeah. Even while it feels like your interminable wait for the C train is anything but progress. I think the world is falling apart, but in some ways I think the city is getting better and better. And maybe some of this is a function of us getting older, but I also like to think that we are going onwards and upwards as a society. Um, Well, Nick Rizzo, thank you so much for joining us. Mackenzie, great to have me. Thanks so much for being on 112BK. Can't wait to come back. And that is the show for today. Join us on Wednesday when we talk about Amazon. The Amazon represents more than half the remaining rainforest on the planet. Amazon.com represents more than half the remaining retail on the planet. We'll talk about New York City aiding and abetting. One 
B2BK is hosted by me, Mackenzie Fagan. It is series produced by Ross Tuttle, also produced by Fred Brown, Shereen Barkey, Isabel Alcantara, Naeem Van, and Emily Bogosian. It is recorded in studio by Clinton Filson Jr., Eric Hogseg, and Antonio M. Rosario. It is post-produced by Alexander Pointzolo, edited by Mira Al-Rahim, and executive produced by Jonathan Leaf, Sasha Mathias, and Aziz Aisham. 